Today's episode of Bags and Brisby is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. High in the air, Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 60 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. Uh, 60, I do believe that's the Hunter Strickland uh, episode. But 60 is also the first number that Matt Williams had when he was with the Giants. That's, this is the Matt Williams rookie episode. Did you know that, Andy? I did not. And didn't Matt Williams hit like a buck 80 uh, as a rookie? Uh, he had 188 with, uh, let me look on baseball reference, 1 billion strikeouts. And One it was. Billion uh, strikeouts. It was. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really sort of remarkable to look at his early uh, career because for the first two years, he just was not hitting at, you know, his OPS plus in his second year was 91, but it was an ugly. You know, it's sort of almost league average. It was 205 batting average, 251 on base percentage. And you're starting to get the itch. You know, he's only 22, but this is a, a high first round pick, a third overall in the draft. And you're starting to wonder, wow, is this guy really going to just take his sweet time to get here? Uh, I think it was the second half of 1989 when he really started to take off. And then he, he got uh, MVP votes the next year. But those first two years... You know how fans get itchy when their prospects start to fail, and there were there were some serious Brandon Wood vibes coming out from him. Ooh, Brandon Brandon Wood, uh, Dallas McPherson. You're you're touching on a, a not so great era of of Angels prospect history right there. Um, you know what? It, it is funny though. You wonder how much the game has changed. Uh, that you know, I mean, Matt Williams was what the third overall pick, so he was going to get some rope. But, you know, one of the other examples people always bring up is Mike Schmidt, who batted 206 and 196, you know, in his first uh, cup of coffee and then his first season. I mean, 440 plate appearances, and he batted 196 uh, as a 23-year-old rookie in 1973. And he was a second-round pick, but how many of those guys would have gone the Zach Green route this year and just wouldn't have gotten the at-bats and, and cycled you out and gone on to the next guy? We saw a whole year of the Giants doing that last season. Um, you, know, you wonder if 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 uh, guys don't get the same amount of rope to establish themselves as they used to. Um, but uh, obviously, Matt Williams was the third overall pick, so he was gonna he was gonna get uh, some time to figure things out, and he certainly did. Yeah, and I've uh, lately I've been watching uh, some classic baseball games, and my my latest binge series, so to speak, is the 1989 National League Championship Series. Do you know that one, Andy? You're evil. You're an evil human being. I'm I'm, I'm leaving this podcast now. We shall not speak of that series. But 
But, you know, what what surprised me, because in my brain, because I really, in 1989, I was uh, 11 years old. I wasn't paying that much attention to baseball yet. I was sort of, you know, following here and there. Uh, so watching it, I was surprised to, to hear it was Clark Mitchell Williams. Clark Mitchell Williams. And that's sort of like how it's presented to you. Um, you know, Maddox has to get through Clark Mitchell Williams. But like he has to get through Clark Mitchell Williams. And it's already like an established trio. And you look at the stats and, and for the year, you know, they weren't so hot. And that's because he started the year as cold. So again, after these previous two seasons where he's just a mess, he comes into 1989 and he hits 132 in the month of April. And he has a 435 OPS when he is sent down on May 1st. And you're, again, just thinking, yeah, not going to work. Not going to work. This guy, I don't know if he's ever going to hit, you know, again, series Brandon Wood vibes. And he comes back up for the end of July for August and just starts to pummel home runs. I mean, the on-base percentage wasn't great for the rest of the year, but, you know, he was just pummeling home runs. And he became a part of that fearsome kind of middle of the order that you just didn't want to face in 89 and 90. And so what happens if he doesn't come back up and start hitting? There were just no guarantees back then. And then the Cubs win the World Series in 1989, and, and I am uh, <laughs> and, and a very, very happy 14-year-old. But uh, um, I tell you what, somewhere out there is some minor league roving hitting instructor we've never heard of before who went up to Matt Williams in, uh, what have you been, a Phoenix Firebird, I guess, at the time? Yeah. And yeah. said, you know what, why don't you try just rubbing your chin against your shoulder, against your front <laughs> shoulder as you're waiting for the pitch? I know it sounds weird, but just give it a try. Do it for a week and, and see what happens. And then he just hit like 90 home runs and, and the rest was history. Yeah, and going through Matt Williams' minor league career, it was kind of unfair that he was in the the major leagues. If you're looking at his stats, uh, you know, third overall pick, got it. Uh, But he was, you would not see this career progression today because right after the draft, he's in low A, he's in short season ball, and he's just sort of like, you know, holding his head above water in low A. And the next season, right away, he starts in, in triple A. And he has just a tiny amount of success, tons of strikeouts, boom, called right up. Uh, struggles, gets sent back down, and now he's struggling in AAA again. Don't care, boom, you know, called up the next season too. So, like, he was really kind of punted directly into the major leagues without a lot of adjustments. So when we talk about the career development of Matt Williams, which wasn't supposed to be the topic of this podcast, uh, it's it's something that you wouldn't see today. You're not going to see teams panic and, and say, oh, yeah, here's our, our top, top draft prospect just to, to make you excited. Here he is. Boom. You know, that's it's, it's a weird development cycle. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, that does actually sort of interestingly segue to one of the topics we did want to talk about on the podcast today because he was uh, made his major league debut last season. And we had a lot of conversation this spring about how they were going to use him and play him all over the diamond. And a guy I think Giants fans are probably pretty excited about uh, plays a game with a lot of joy. And that's Mauricio Dubon. So um, what what about his spring uh, got you a little bit pumped to see uh, some Mauricio Dubon this season? Oh, that he existed. I mean, I just like the kid. You know what I mean? It's, it's it's just watching him play. And look, you have Giants fans are already spoiled when it comes to the local angle. When you have that picture of, of Brandon Crawford looking sad in 1992 before the Giants are about to leave for Florida, that that's just hilarious. That it's Brandon Crawford, future championship shortstop for the Giants, looking sad that the Giants are going to leave for Tampa. Uh, that's a great local angle. 
and you shouldn't get one of, another one of those in your lifetime. That that should be kind of like a one-off. But to have like uh, Dubon take these or share these pictures of him, like you know, smiling in front of the Coke bottle and and waiting in line for autographs and all that stuff, that, that's remarkable. It's such a good story, even if he's a jerk. Even if he's a jerk, that's a funny like little twist to this whole story. And then he plays the game with like this joy that is just straight up let's play two Ernie Banks style. Hey, I am here. Like he's like whispering to himself, I'm in the big leagues with the Giants. And it's so much fun. I, I really, I really do enjoy watching the players. Um, when they button up a Giants jersey, you can tell every day they don't take it for granted, and it's just a little act of joy. Uh, and they play that way. You know, uh, Omar Vizquel played that way. Um, Kevin Franzen is a guy who I think has a similar story to the one we're talking about, um, which, you know, makes it pretty painful that, that Kevin was traded in the spring of 2010. It was literally, like, within two weeks of, of being on that roster long enough to get a ring. Um, but um, but still, you know, the, the connection to the Rigettis and, and, and wearing number 19 and all that, I mean, that's that was a tremendous story, everything that happened with his brother passing away. Um, but but with, with Dubon, it's, uh, you know, he, he comes to this country when he's 15 years old as a foreign exchange student uh, from Honduras, and uh, goes to uh, Central Catholic in um, in Sacramento, and the Giants are the local team, so he becomes a Giants fan, and then boom, he all of a sudden is ruining his perfect attendance uh, for the year, so he can skip school and go to the 2012 parade and stand in the rain and 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 watch Brandon Crawford go by and Buster Posey go by on on their uh, cable cars on the parade route, and then you know you look up one decade later, less than a decade later, and and he's. Uh, He's taking throws from both those guys in uh, in big league games, and so yeah, he's totally pinching himself. And and um, it's uh, uh, we bring him up for a few reasons. One, I, I did an interview with him toward the end of spring training that um, I had. I, I recently did write a story about him uh, and talked to his fiance Nancy. And um, there's a lot more in in his backstory that's interesting. And they're in Miami right now, and they're in Nancy's uh, high rise apartment. Um, Nancy's little brother, who's a high school senior, who's you know obviously losing his baseball season, but he's got some baseball aspirations of his own. They met because Mauricio would go back to Honduras in the off season. He'd coach a local youth team and help out on it. And Nancy's nine-year-old brother, Carlos, who's now a, a um, high school senior, was on the team, and so that's how the families first got to know each other. And the Herrera family, um, you know, they own a, a meat processing plant in. Uh, Honduras, and so you know they they are a family of some means, so they're able to go to the U.S. and and uh, on vacations and such. And they would always figure out where Mauricio was playing, and and they would go see him. And so they made one trip to Miami and and uh, saw him play in the Futures game a couple years ago. And and Nancy, uh, they weren't dating at that time, uh, but that was Nancy's kind of laughs, and she says, "Yeah, that's I remember going to see him play in the Futures game when he was just a uh, you know a guy that was a friend of the family. And now they they obviously got engaged, and they went to they went to Disneyland Paris uh, last off season, and, and he popped the question there. And they're both big Disney fans, and and uh, and now uh, they're sheltering in place with with Carlos, and and they've got this high rise apartment with a little balcony on it. And Mauricio set up uh, netting over the balcony, and he's got um, a Nerf gun set up to to 
to shoot Nerf balls at him that he can swing at with a <laughs> wiffle bat. I mean, that's that's all he can do right now. But And it's Wild. ridiculous. But you know that he's probably out there for like eight hours a day driving the, the neighbors crazy, whacking uh, Nerf balls all day long. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just that was that was a fun story to write about and, and, and share. And that's uh, up on our site. No, it, it was... I'm not gonna say it's easy to 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 minimize you know the importance to Honduras because it's not no one no one's actually just forgetting about it but it's the importance of having a guy like Dubon for for uh, baseball in Honduras it is it, it's kind of breathtaking to think about because I one of the highlights I, I watched uh, since the shelter in place was Andreas Galarraga coming back from cancer and with the Braves. And there was the shot before he hits the home run where you cut to the crowd and it's just just all these Venezuelan flags. And, and you know, he talks about just, just the pride he felt. And then he hits a home run and, and the crowd just going bonkers. The the broadcasters are mentioning, you know, if he hits a home run, this place is going to melt down. And, and that's exactly what happened. And you remember, like, like now you're you're used to Venezuela being a, a, a baseball powerhouse. Uh, but it, it's got to start somewhere. And that's like when Juan Marichal is, is the Dominican dandy. Like, the, it's not a novelty, but it's like, this isn't as established back then. Uh, so Honduras right now, it's not a baseball powerhouse yet. It, it takes someone like Dubon to, to succeed and thrive in the majors. And if he does, you know, you'll kind of look back and say, that's where it started. This is this is something that, that sparked a little bit of a fire in, in a new baseball country. Yeah, I, I love the fact that there are so many shortstops from Venezuela, and there's a reason they all wear the same number. Uh, there's a reason <laughs> Ozzy Guillen and Omar Vizquel yes. were 13. It's because Davy Concepcion was 13, and Davy was 13 because Luis Aparicio was 13. Yes. Uh, and, and I just think that's one of the little things in the game that's just an awesome, awesome little tribute. And it does. It speaks to just that, that sort of how important that pioneering spirit and quality is. And, and I would say the same thing for Felipe Alou. I mean, uh, I, I don't think that... You know, we in the Bay Area, and obviously we know Felipe very well. We know Felipe's story, and we know what a, what a regal presence he is, and, and what an honorable person he is. Um, I still don't think we understand just how high in esteem and regard the Alou family is held. I mean, they're royalty in the Dominican Republic uh, because he was the first guy to really come from the Dominican, uh, not speaking English, not understanding the American culture, not understanding that he would be seen. Um, you know, as, as someone who would be subject to Jim Crow and all the awfulness in the South, um, he didn't know what he was walking into. He was the first person to sort of do that and, uh, and, and take that on. Um, and, and, you know, I just think that that is a very, very meaningful place for him to have in baseball history. And on top of that, he was a great player and, uh, and a, a very, very accomplished manager too. Uh, I will say one thing, um, uh, we, we tend to be so so centered on ourselves, but, you know, this coronavirus is all over the world, and it's in a lot of places where there is not the infrastructure and there are not the resources, and we talk a lot about how there should be more testing here and there should be more resources here, and we're a very wealthy country, um, but in places like Honduras, I think the current count is there have been 419 cases, 31 deaths, at least uh, according to Reuters right now. Um, and there is one site that uh, Mauricio has, has uh, tweeted about. Uh, it's called Operacion Frijol, and this helps get uh, food to people who are uh, sheltering in place and who can't really go out and, and, and are maybe in rural areas or uh, they're not able to 
basically find uh, uh, the, the network of people who can help them get just get meals. And uh, so you can find it at abrasos.org, A-B-R-A-S-S-O-S. And uh, yeah, it's Operacion, O-P-E-R-A-C-I-O-N, Frijol, Frijol as in bean, F-R-I-J-O-L. And uh, they are very close to reaching their fundraising goal, but I'm sure the more they can get, the better. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the remarkable things is is how every little thing that you look at makes makes you go like, oh yeah, those people are hurting too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. look at like a, a, a just a any item that that you is in your grocery cart, like oh yeah, yeah, the people who who you know are are making this box of stroganoff or whatever that that they're you know the the shipping's hurting the, everything's hurting and it's just i i can't wrap my brain around it and so the idea of uh people just how do you get food is just it's a noble thing it's a noble thing that dupont's doing um i, I i'm also wondering with with your story when it comes to uh him hitting nerf balls on a balcony do you think we'll see a disparity between the the players right now who are sheltering in place on, you know, an acre with their own indoor batting cage and players like Damone who don't have that opportunity? Do you think we'll see, like, a difference between the, the readiness of those players or will that all be kind of hashed out as soon as you get to whatever way you open the baseball season? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, there, there's just not a lot of resources that are available Um uh, but uh, you know, the, for the for the players that can access, like you know, Brandon Crawford's a great example. Uh, he's done a tour of his house, and we see that he, you know, he he obviously uh, can afford a, to have a lifestyle with a big backyard, and he's got a home gym, and he's got uh, stuff that he can do in his garage. And 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 uh, there are other people who are living in high rise apartments, or other people who uh, don't have access to a whole lot. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that that would probably make a difference. But I do know that the Giants have been really really very involved um with their players uh the hitting coaches the pitching coaches um the trainers uh the all the strength and conditioning coaches i mean they're they're in contact pretty much daily with with everybody and uh you know finding resources for them uh finding uh you know uh equipment that they can send to them or um obviously it's it they can't work out in a group setting of, of any kind um, but I think like Tyler Beatty was telling me as he's uh, going to ramp up his Tommy John rehab, he does have a, a clinic he can go to, um, that, you know, will only have like five or six different people who will drop in and they just sign up for different times and then everything's wiped down in between, um, so that they're the only ones there, you know, when they're there. Um, but yeah, I, I think like anything else, there's going to be sort of differential outcomes to, to what, to what is available for people to to train with, and it's going to be very very different. I, I think it's going to be the toughest for the pitchers because the pitchers are trying to, you know, they're throwing, but they don't know when they're going to have to be ready. Um, hitters, I think you can kind of start up and they can get their timing back, um, but it, it's it's the pitching and pitching injuries um, that I think are going to be what most front offices, uh, most coaches, most players are, are probably going to be the most concerned about whenever uh, it's possible for, for guys to really have a start date and, and, and know when, uh, you know, when, when there's going to be an opening day. And with, with Dubon 
particularly, one of the things I was excited to see was his progress as a defender in center field. And that's something you certainly can't plan for on a, an apartment balcony. I mean, uh, please don't. That's dangerous. Um, <laughs> right. When I saw you put the net up, I was like, woo, okay, good. That's that's because Nancy was telling me that, uh, you know, they had like the, the resistance rubber bands out there. And I'm like, no, if it snaps off, we could have a... Something very, very bad happened. So I'm, I mean, I'm, if Kevin Pillar's in that situation, how would you stop him from like running into those nets? Like, well, it doesn't you know? Let's see if this can support me. It's gotta, you gotta try it. You know, he right? Would, he would be the it's, guy it's who in does his nature. <laughs> but I, I really, I'm not gonna say it's crucial to Devon's future to play a, a good, solid center field. But it sure helps with what the Giants need, what the Giants could use. And it doesn't, if he can play a competent center field or a solid center field, even, uh, that just put, takes a lot of the pressure off of his bat. Because if, if you are a middle infielder, you don't need to hit that much. But if you can play all over, you know, that, that side of the defensive, de- defensive spectrum, uh, you, you don't need to hit. A whole lot at all. And if you can, you start to become wildly valuable. If you start to hit like Marco Scudero, but you can also play, uh, and I'm talking not superhero Marco Scudero in 2012, just like the general nice hitter that Marco Scudero usually was, uh, you become wildly valuable if you can play a a solid shortstop, a solid center field. And, And I think that's what the Giants were looking for. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you look at what they had out there in center and, and Steven Duggar, they'd, they'd already, you know, they've optioned him. So clearly they didn't think that he was ready, uh, you know, to be a big league contributor right now. He's, he's had a lot of injuries. He's got to show that he's durable and can make some adjustments. Uh, so you can't count on him yet. Uh, you've got Billy Hamilton, which, you know, we know was probably more of a way to sort of scheme that 26th roster spot and maybe have a designated pinch runner, but also have a guy who, you know, could play center field if everybody else falls flat on their face and they're stuck without a center fielder. I mean, we've seen when the Giants have not had an at least league average center fielder, it's bad. It's Denard Span bad. I mean, it's uh, we we we've seen late career Angel Pagan out there and it was bad. Um, and the and Dave the other Roberts. thing is. Oh, yeah. You can go down the list. I mean, there's uh, Marquise Grissom toward the end was uh, yes, he, he was never really awful in center, but but he definitely, you know, did not have did not cover the ground he, he used to cover. And then, um, you know, you go see somebody out there who's competent and good. And it's just like it's a revelation. And I, I, I love the Mikey Stremsky story. I think that uh, Mikey Stremsky was not a flash in the pan. But he's not an everyday center fielder, and uh, and you were down to Mauricio Devon or Billy Hamilton or trade for somebody who might come come available, and it was I think it was going to be really important for Devon to play center field, just so this team wasn't caught in a really bad spot because we know how how difficult it can be when the outfield is not making plays for you, and and don't forget Hunter Pence was going to be making some starts out there in left field too, so he was going to need a lot of help in center. Um, you know, from, from an above average center fielder. So, um, yeah, I, I think outfield defense is, is a priority for the Giants and it always should be just given their, their, their division, given their ballpark, uh, given the fact that they're going to rely on pitching probably to the next time they have a really good team will be another pitching centric team. So, um, all that's going to be important, I think. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my the vibe I'm getting from Jalen Davis is probably not an everyday center fielder too. Is that is that accurate? Would you say? 
I think so. Yeah, and thanks for bringing him up. I, I he got lost in the shuffle. Spring training, you know, was eight eight hundred and seventeen years ago. So I'm trying to remember <laughs> exactly who all they had. But um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I don't think that scouts love Jalen Davis in center field. I think they see him as someone who can who can basically you know fill the space, but but not somebody who's going to probably. Um, uh, uh, you know, lead your team in DRS or, or any other defensive metrics. Um, and, and, you know, Kevin Pillar was uh, not uh, so great with the metrics either, but he did make the plays. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that it's, it's, they don't have a whole lot in their system right now in terms of someone we could see soon who could be an impact defensive center fielder. Elliot Ramos, I think, is going to end up in a corner too because he's just a big guy. Um, right. So yeah, that's I think that's going to be a developmental focus for them. And you know, I, Hunter Bishop I think was going to be interesting to watch if he could stick in center field. Um, but you know, obviously uh, there isn't going to be a minor league season to for them to sort of start to make this those evaluations. And that that's I know we've talked about this, but that's one of the the weirder parts of all this is that it's not like. Look, my kid misses a year of school. She's still going to get bigger and stronger. And next year when she plays softball, she's going to be, you know, 12 as opposed to 11. And she's going to have a little bit more physical strength, a little bit more uh, more neurons are connected. She's going to, you know what I mean? It, there is going to be some development that happens. That's not what's happening when you are grown. You know, you might get a little stronger or whatever when you've been working out in place. But, like, the misdevelopment for every everyone, it, so at least it's even, but... You know, prospects aren't just going to go from age 21 to 22 and magically accumulate all the baseball skills they would have. So are you going to start to see, like, uh, developmental delays when it comes to, like, a, a, a guy like Elliot Ramos you're expecting to see in AAA? Does he just come into baseball if it happens toward the end of this year or maybe next year? Basically in the same spot, like a guy coming straight out of A-ball. I mean, that's how you have to approach it, right? I, I don't know. I, I it's a great question, and um, I think I would I would like to try to talk to uh, maybe Kyle Haynes, the Giants farm director. Yeah. In fact, maybe that can be uh, the next piece I start working on. Um, how, how do you start to think about development? How how much muscle memory can you really lose if you don't yeah. play you know baseball sort of at game speed for a whole year? And and who loses the most muscle memory? Is it the pitcher or is it the hitter? I mean, at least with the pitching. Um, you haven't sort of spent any bullets, so to speak, but you know, um, yeah, it's it's uh, how much of those skills really um, disappear and, and never return. It's that's a really compelling question. I, I I would I would be interested to hear the answers of some people who work in player development to sort of see what they would sort of spitball and, and say in response to that. And I wonder how big the apples are to the oranges if you start to, to look back in the in the 40s and see the the talent pool that that went off for world war ii i mean i know it wasn't baseball didn't shut down it's it's not a, a that similar of a situation but you still had a large swath of the young you know prospect class just sort of disappear for a few years and 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 how did that affect them did they come back i mean we know what happened when like you know ted williams comes back from from war or, or willie mays comes back uh they're basically the same and but it's it's something that maybe has parallels i don't know i'm not smart enough i i write i write jokes here so I, I just got to say, I, I just pulled up Ted Williams' baseball reference page, and before I could go to the tab for the season in which he returned, 
uh, from the war, 1946, uh, when, oh, let's see, oh yeah, he hit 342 with a 1.164 OPS uh, at the age of 27, yeah, okay, but what, what caught me was, you know, at the baseball reference page, you see, you know, born, died, high school, bats left, throws right, for Ted oh, Williams, God. if you go to buried, it. it's just buried it. colon frozen, <laughs> and I just, I just, I just got stuck on that. Uh, let it go. Let it go. <laughs> wow. Quite literally, that, yeah. Uh, wow, that is... I I just saw that. That is remarkable. Um, I had never noticed that on this page before. Buried, colon, frozen. Uh, and that is on every baseball reference page because there are people who are very into... Uh, visiting, you know, the graves of ball, ball players. I used to, to to work under one, Rob Nyer. He's very, very like it's kind of like a little side hobby to baseball. He just knows where these baseball players are buried, what their headstones say, or what they look like. Um, so that's why that's on Baseball Reference. And in Ted Williams, frozen, frozen. Yeah, you know what? That does Man. bring me, uh, bring me up. Um, uh, another good story that we can plug was Alex Coffey, our A's writer. Uh, you yes. know, we're doing this hokey thing about uh, favorite players, and I wrote about Tim Lincecum, and then someone else wrote about Tim Lincecum, and then someone else wrote about Tim Lincecum. <laughs> um, and they're all great. Uh, Lindsay Adler's was particularly good. Um, but Alex Coffey, she, you know, was an intern at the Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown uh, for, I believe, a year, maybe a little longer. And it's like she just went there and like a chipmunk putting, uh, uh, storing stuff away in her cheeks uh, every day. She just stored away story ideas that she wanted to write about at some point. Yeah. And one of them was uh, this guy Clyde Sukforth, who I'd never heard of before. And and uh, he, he played a, um, a long time ago and, and was um, Dodgers manager when Jackie Robinson broke into the big leagues. And he was only the Dodgers manager for two days, but that was one of the two days. And, uh, and, and and she writes about why this guy who um, she'd never met before was her favorite player. And she leads you into the fact that their summer home they went to in Maine, um, he was buried in a little nondescript cemetery, cemetery like 10 miles away. And so that's where she got this idea of, you know, there's a story here. There's, a, there's sort of this cosmic connection that I have to this guy. And, uh, and then she tells the story, and it's fantastic. So if you haven't seen that one... Clyde Sukforth and uh, by Alex Coffey. It's it's on our site and uh, and that's a really good one. That was that was a really good one and it's uh, I don't know my my cosmic connection is I think to Bill Lasky, which isn't quite as uh, doesn't quite have the same gravitas as this story. Well, you know it probably will in a few years, but like Bill Lasky's that my parents would go like go to garage sales at his house. He's the one who would give me balls that kind of uh, um, got my my baseball fandom going in nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty five. Uh, so Bill Lasky's my cosmic connection. Do, do you have a cosmic connection? Oh gosh, do I have a cosmic connection? You know <laughs> what? I I might have a couple. Um, I'll tell you one is Mike Sosha. Um, Mike Sosha uh, lived in Claremont. I lived in Upland, the next town over, when I was a kid, when he was catching for the Dodgers. Um, he he came to our grade school, our Lady of the Assumption grade school one time, and I had nothing for him to sign, so I ran after him in the hallway, and I had um, a Larry Johnson Converse sneaker, and uh, I took it off, and he signed my shoe, because uh, I had nothing else for him to sign. And, uh, and so then fast forward a few years later, and my brother is working for a home builder, and Mike Sosha buys a home in Rancho Cucamonga uh, that's essentially a, a, a real estate investment, but uh, it was for his sister, I believe. And 
uh, my brother was uh, his sort of um, uh, agent, and and he would you know take him he did the walkthrough on the home with him, and and Mike Sosha was always struck by what a good job my brother Jim did, uh, and and for 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 that point forward, whenever I would see Mike Sosha, he'd ask me about my brother, and then uh, then we we fast forward a few more years, and 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 I start covering the Angels in 2000 for the Riverside Press Enterprise, and the Angels hire Mike Sosha to manage, so I I, I covered the Angels his first two years. Uh, as manager, I don't think I ever told him the shoe story. I, I don't think I really <laughs> needed to volunteer that. But uh, um, but yeah, he, he would always ask me about my brother Jim, which I thought was so cool. And I thought, gosh, he, he met him for like, you know, an hour, uh, but made that kind of impression on him. So yeah, the, the fact that, that I kept running across Mike Sosha, I think uh, there's got to be some sort of cosmic connection there. That was a, a bad question to ask uh, at minute 29 of the podcast, because now I want to talk about the time that Johnny LeMaster visited me in the hospital, um, which really did happen. Um, and, and you we'll said, to... Johnny, can you hit a home run for me? And Johnny just l- tilted his head back and laughed and laughed and laughed. <laughs> well, here's, 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 here's the thing, is that, look, I was getting allergy shots. Like, I wasn't, I, I don't know if he just sort of took a big swing and a miss and, and tried to visit the really sick kids, and I just <laughs> and I just was at the the right place at the right time, um, or if he was on his way to visit kids who, who really wanted to see John and the Master. Uh, but I had in my pocket uh, a, a pack of baseball cards, because a mother's cookies box of baseball cards, because that's just what I carried around, like my wallet. Uh, and I was able to get him to sign it. And my dad, to this day, I think it's uh, the story is apocryphal, and I, I don't, I don't think this actually happened. I think this is, this is fake. But my dad insists; he swears that it's true. Is that I told him, you know, you can't really hit, but you're a good, good fielder, and I. That's just too on the nose. That is just too on the nose. Honesty, you can't beat uh, the honesty of children. I wasn't wrong. All right. This has been episode 60 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back on Monday with some Giants-related content. Thank you again.